Well, good morning, and uh, welcome to you all here in, in church, and for those who are listening uh, on the streaming. And uh, it's a glorious day outside, so uh, uh, thank God for that. Duncan will be continuing our, our preaching service, series from Acts with the theme of the Unforgotten Church, where we will see that the mission of the church is unstoppable and that God is always glorified, even if we struggle to understand what is happening in the here and now. Good morning, everybody. The reading this morning is taken from Acts chapter 12, starting at verse 1. Peter's miraculous escape from prison. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four guards, by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter said, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself. They went through it. When they had walked the length of one streak, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer, outer entrance and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be an angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said. And then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. 
After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Herod's death. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarrelling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of God, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Margaret, for the reading. Well, please do turn with me again back to Acts chapter 12. There are, um, there are Christians in every country in the world, but it's fair to say, isn't it, that life is not the same for all of those Christians. Some Christians have absolute freedom. Their religious rights are even protected in law. They're comfortably off. The government even gives citizens tax breaks for supporting the church. They have it pretty good. But then there are others who could only dream of such a world. Consider Christians in some parts of the Islamic world. Perhaps they converted from Islam to Christianity. As well as being illegal, it certainly means being disowned by their family. Christians in those places, they meet in secret. They cannot openly read or own a Bible, and they live with the constant threat of imprisonment or worse. And add into that, there's no sign of that changing anytime soon. So, what's going on? People who have to live in those kinds of circumstances, what is going on? Has God forgotten them? Or even think of our situation. You know, the number of Christians in Scotland is at a record low. It's becoming harder and harder to be public about being a Christian. To speak the good news about Jesus is increasingly regarded as intolerant and utterly out of place in our secular society. What's going on? Has God forgotten us? Maybe you've got a more personal story today. Maybe you're in one of those seasons of life where just everything seems to be going wrong. Relationships have soured. Concerns about health, money problems, work problems. And you pray about it 
You maybe even get others to pray too, and things just don't seem to improve. And you wonder, has God forgotten you? This passage that we've come to today is just so helpful for us. It is more than that chapter of Acts where someone gets eaten by worms at the end. It's much more than that. It's so helpful for us because in a sense, well, chapter two is the, the chapter 12 is the ongoing story of the advance of the church of Jesus Christ. I mean, look where it ends in verse 24, but the word of God increased and multiply. This is another chapter telling us about the advance of the church of Jesus Christ, but boy, things do not go as planned for the Christians there. These are the events that take place here are not what they would have hoped for. There is pain in these verses. There is anxiety in these verses for the church. And yet, at the same time, we're being shown that God remains in complete control of everything. This is the story of the unforgotten church, because God never forgets His people. So, let's look at that pain. This is how the chapter opens. We first of all see that the church is oppressed very much here, don't we? The church is oppressed. This chapter takes us back to Jerusalem. And, and you'll have noticed this, I'm sure. This whole chapter, you could consider it as the story of King Herod. Six times Herod is named throughout these verses. He's an important part of proceedings here. Now, there are a few Herods in the Bible. This one is known as Herod Agrippa. So, Herod's granddad he was Herod the Great. He was the guy who ordered the slaughter of baby boys in Bethlehem at the time of Jesus' birth. Uh, Herod's uncle was Herod Antipas. He's the guy who had John the Baptist's head cut off and who had, uh, whom Jesus stood before at the time of his trial. And so you see, this Herod Agrippa, he, he comes from a notorious family with a violent past and we see that this apple hasn't fallen far from the same tree. The heat was beginning to be turned up on the followers of Jesus. At first, you see, the church just looked like an eccentric bunch of Jews in the midst of a wider Jewish culture. After all, they still attended Jewish temple, they still observed the Jewish festivals. But what we've seen in the last couple of chapters, if you've been with us these last couple of weeks, is that a new dawn has come for the church because now they have embraced non-Jewish people who have converted to Christianity. For the Jewish society that they lived in, this was beyond the pale. I mean, it's one thing to be eccentric, but it is another to bring in these unclean Gentiles and to mix with them and to eat with them and to call them your family. No, they have become something totally different to us now, was how they were viewed. And it's led to tension in this community. And so King Herod decides he's going to take control of things. And it seems he has this very targeted approach where he, he puts particular Christians in prison and even worse. 
You see, nobody in the early church believed that somehow Christians were exempt from hardship. They were under no illusion. They had not bought into this bizarre idea that exists in our world that trusting Jesus was a surefire way to reach health, wealth, and happiness. That's made very clear here, isn't it? Verse 2, Herod killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. James was one of the very first disciples Along with his brother John, Jesus called him. You know, they, they left their, their, their fishing boat behind. They came and they followed Jesus. Along with Peter and John, James was one of Jesus' inner circle. Often we see Jesus take those three aside and, and in particular invest in them. James was one of them. And yet there's no miraculous rescue here. There's not even a glorious send-off recorded here. King Herod tackles this Jesus problem, and he has James's head cut off. You know, when Stephen was killed in chapter 7 of Acts, we read that for all of the tragedy of his death, it resulted in something. You know, believers were then scattered out of Jerusalem to all sorts of places, and as they were scattered, they spread the gospel, and in this way, the church grew. We could say back then that, well, God used Stephen's tragic death to fulfill this greater thing. Now, Luke, who writes this book of Acts for us, well, he doesn't deliver the silver lining here. There's no nice, tidy ending here. We're just told that he was killed by the sword and that it made the Jews happy to see the church leadership being cut down in this way. But that's not all. Peter, the leader of the church, he's arrested and he's thrown in prison, and the only thing seemingly that keeps him alive is the timing of a Jewish festival, and it would be that festival that runs for seven or eight days, so he has to wait it's not a good idea to murder someone during a religious festival. Get your religious duty done, and then you can murder someone. And Herod's intention is when that festival is done, he will present Peter to the people just as they did with his friend Jesus, and they can call for a suitable punishment. Be under no illusion, Peter here finds himself on death row, and he's going nowhere, is he? These four squads of four soldiers, which probably means um, every three hours through the night, these four soldiers would rotate. They're making sure that they are standing watch. Two soldiers to stay with the prisoner at all times, and two soldiers to stand watch at the door. Yeah, the opposition to the church is real here. And to the naked eye, this is an unbelievable mismatch. The way Herod is described here is he's a man full of power. He is Herod the king. He lays violent hands on people. He kills with the sword. He arrests. He seizes. He puts in prison. He has these four squads of four soldiers at his command. And by contrast, look at the church in verse 5. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. 
mean, they sound so feeble by comparison, don't they? All of these things at Herod's disposal, and what is it the church are doing? Well, they, they prayed. The church seems helpless in the face of this onslaught. You know, Luke uses a very important word in verse 5. We probably missed it. It says this, so Peter was kept in prison, but, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. That but that Luke uses there indicates that there was something that turned the tide. The church is oppressed in those first four verses, but here's what changed the direction of things. The church prayed. Because what follows for the rest of the chapter is this amazing revelation to us that even though the church is oppressed, the church is in God's hands. The church is in God's hands. Such is the nature of Peter's escape from prison that as it's happening, he assumes it's a dream. Perhaps like me, he's a deep sleeper. And when he's been woken from sleep, it takes him a few minutes to, uh, well, where we're from, we say to come tea. You know what I mean by that, right? A few minutes to come round and uh, just really come to your full senses. Peter thinks it's a dream. And it tells us that even though Peter actually earlier in Acts had a miraculous escape from prison, this sort of thing did not happen every day. And the thing that stands out to me is just how calm this scene seems to be. You know, all of the brute strength and violence that's been shown by Herod, the king's strength and power is overcome here by an angel. And the most violent thing the angel has to do is to elbow Peter to get him to wake up. And a series of commands, Peter, get dressed, put your shoes on, wrap your cloak around you, follow me. And we're told, well, the chains fell off. The iron gate opened all by itself. And Peter, he walks out. And when he comes tea, there he is standing in the street in Jerusalem. And he comes to himself and he knows what has happened. Verse 11. Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. So we see that Herod's maximum security prison was no match for the living gods. This was not going to hold back God's mission. God clearly still had some work for Peter to do. God had not forgotten about the church. In fact, God was keeping close watch. You notice that the rescue, verse 6, was on that very night before Herod was due to bring Peter out and execute him. But we are left wondering, I think we should be left wondering here, why was Peter rescued? And why was James not rescued? Why did one lose his head and the other one have an angel to rescue him? And those questions really do come to us, especially when it's made clear here that God 
he clearly could have rescued them both, right? That's what's coming to us here. God's not forgotten the church. God is able to intervene. God is able to rescue Peter. So, why didn't he do it for James? And the truth is, we're not given the answer. But it does make it clear that God is very much in control. And at first, that doesn't sound like much. But when you let it sink in, actually, that's life-giving to understand that, that God is in control. Sure, it doesn't answer all our questions, but it does give us what we need. Because you see, God is the unchanging God. And that means that His goodness is unchanging. He is always good. God's promises never lose any of their validity. And so, God's commitment to His people never falters. The writer to the Hebrews in chapter 11 of that book speaks about those who lived by faith. And he speaks of those servants of God who, through faith, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. By faith, there were some who escaped the edge of the sword, but he goes on. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. You see, the different fates of these two men is not at all a reflection on their different faiths. These were men who served God by faith, and yet how they came to their end was different. Nowhere to see here, God is working out His purposes. And to have confidence that His purposes are good. They remain good. God is here, Luke's priority is to show us how God is building the church, and that's what He's promised to do. The church is headed for this certain destination of glory with Christ forever, and He has promised to get us there. And when oppression or heartache or confusion come, well, this chapter sends us back to the God who holds all things in His hands. Not necessarily to find the quick fix that we might wish for, but to go back to Him and to say, Lord, I don't know what's going on here. I cannot see why this has happened. I cannot see why the church is facing these struggles. I cannot understand just now why I'm carrying the burdens that I have. Why, Lord, was my childhood as wretched as it was? Why has that relationship broken down, Lord? I don't know the answer to those questions, but I know that you're in control, and I trust you, Lord. Because that's what the church is doing here. James has his head cut off. Peter's put on death row. And what are the church found doing? They're praying. Praying is coming to God and saying, Lord, we trust you. We need you. It is to say, Lord, I know that you are good and that you have promised to work everything together for the good of those who love you and for your own glory. 
One day, friends, we will see. One day we will see. One day I am sure we will understand why James's ministry was seemingly cut short. That's how we see it. But from God's perspective, James's mission was accomplished. And home he goes to the inheritance that he was promised. And he receives the welcome, well done, good and faithful servant. At the end of Romans chapter 11, Paul reflects on these sorts of things and all he can do is say, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. But they're his ways. Because if we come to the conclusion that we are just at the mercy of events and that all these things come to us by chance, then therein is the road to complete misery. Friends, we know that we have a sovereign God who loves us, who has promised to bring us to glory. And he says, trust me. Peter's instinct is to go and see his family. So he heads to Mary's house. She's the mother of John Mark, who's going to travel back to Antioch with Saul and Barnabas, which we'll see in a couple of weeks' time. What takes place at this house is mostly, um, if we were to put a a current uh, genre over it, it's, it's, it's a comedy sketch, isn't it? What happens here at Mary's house? He knocks on the door of the gateway, which suggests Mary has a big house. Rhoda goes to answer it. And there is something... There's something true to human nature here, I think. In her excitement at hearing Peter's voice, she forgets to open the door and runs back to tell them all, Peter's here. And you can imagine the tension in Peter stuck out on the street knocking at the door, a wanted man. But here's the thing, seemingly with one voice, the Christians say to Rhoda, you're crazy. You're crazy. In fact, so closed-minded are they to the possibility that Peter could be knocking on their door right now that they think it's far more likely that it's an angel who's turned up and knocked at the door. And they get the surprise of their lives when Peter finally joins them. This is actually so encouraging. I mean, just think, what were these Christians doing? Well, we're told they were praying, right? And who do you suppose they were praying for? We're praying for Peter. Many Christians, myself included often, find themselves discouraged when it comes to this subject of prayer. There's a popular view of prayer that says the reason why you're not seeing your prayers answered, the reason why we're not unleashing the power of prayer is because we don't have enough faith. Well, I am sure the folks who were gathered in Mary's house here in Acts 12 were mighty relieved that the power of their prayers was not dependent on the strength of their faith because they had no sense that what took place could ever take place. They were praying for Peter, yet they had no conviction he could be sprung from jail. And yet we're being told that it was in response to the prayers of the church that God intervened. Remember that in verse 5? But earnest prayer was made to God by the church. Earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. When the Christian prays, 
They come into the presence of God. And in a very literal sense, we speak to God. And you may have noticed this from the prayers that have already been said in this service. That approach to God in prayer is not done in my own name. No, we, we, we don't come before God and somehow, how plead, somehow plead our own merits to tell God how deserving we are of Him answering our prayers. No, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. In other words, our access to God in prayer is because of Jesus, not because of me. It's because we come through Him that we can pray. And so the strength of our prayers is riding on the reception that Jesus Christ has in the presence of God the Father. And He has an unbreakable union of love and devotion with the Father. And that is why even weak prayers, that is why even weak faith brings us to God. Because it's not the strength of the faith that counts, it's the reliability of the place where we put our faith. I mean, I don't think there's a Christian here today who doesn't need to hear this. If you belong to Jesus Christ today, if you believe that He is the Son of God who came as a man, died on a cross in your place, bearing the penalty for your sin, if you believe that He rose from the dead, defeating death for you, and you've turned to serve Him, then you are as accepted by God today as you could ever be. Your prayers are heard in heaven. And even when you're lethargic, even when you doubt that much is going to come from praying, when you do so in faith, coming simply in the name of Jesus, the Bible tells us God hears that, God responds to that. And these Christians, in their prayers, they discover that God really is the one who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. When we truly grasp this, we can begin to ditch some of our misconceptions. In particular, uh, the one that stands in my mind is, that, is, is how many of us do not enjoy meeting together with other Christians for prayer. Now, come on, you can be honest here. You're amongst friends. There are many who just do not enjoy coming together with other Christians to pray. Even if we offered you money at the door, some people wouldn't come to pray with other Christians. And the reason? I'm not very good at praying. I can just never find the words to say. See that other guy who prays? I am not as eloquent as him. I could never pray like that. And all of those things might be true. But this chapter is actually God putting his arm around each one of us and saying, that is just fine. That is just fine. Because prayer isn't about how good you are at praying. It's coming in the name of my son and speaking to me. And I would love it to be the case that our church prayer meeting, you know, where we, in theory, all come together to pray together, that we heard more prayers that simply said, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, I'm struggling, and you know what I need. Be with me. 
Amen. Oh, that would bring the place to life. Anyway, we're meeting at half past seven on Wednesday. It's going to be in the sports hall. Come along. The Lord accepts you. We'd love to pray with you. Things don't end well for Herod, do they? You see, when Peter meets with the church, he's quick to tell them, verse 17. Uh, you can imagine this, can't you? There's this fuss, and he's like, And he tells them, describes them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. How the Lord had brought him out of the prison. Okay, so there's, there's no sense here that Peter's saying, well, here's what I did. And I managed to sneak out past. It's like, no, the Lord intervened and he did this. Credit goes where credit is due. And this is precisely the opposite of what Herod does. I mean, in many ways, springing Peter from prison is an opportunity for Herod. An opportunity to to recognize and to respond to the hand of God at work. But instead of that, despite having these four witnesses who he can speak to, who can all verify that they cannot explain where the prisoner has gone or how he got out, instead he has them killed. He wields that sword again. He has the opportunity to recognize God is at work and instead he responds with more murderous rage because his will has been thwarted. He continues in his rebellion against God and so he goes off home. He's got a lovely holiday home in Caesarea and we learn that he's been exercising his power elsewhere. He's been cutting off the food supply to the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they've managed to arrange an audience with Herod, and their only aim is to get on his good side. And so they flatter him. Herod begins his speech in verse 22. The people reply saying, the voice of a God, not of a man. Herod was one of those guys who loved to be loved. And so he does not try to dissuade them from saying these things. No, he thinks of the Roman emperor whom he knew personally back in Rome and how his subjects worshipped him as a god. And finally, Herod Agrippa is given the same sort of attention. Oh, Agrippa, your voice is not the voice of a man, it is the voice of a god. And he rises, but not for long. As Luke puts it in verse 23, he does not give glory to God. And he drops down in mortal agony And the history books confirm a few days later, he dies. There's something about that description. Verse 23, he was eaten by worms. Just think of how far he has fallen. This man, for all of his seeming power and all of his pomp here, what is he reduced to? Something that the worms feed on. The message here of where it ends for Herod is that rebellion against God always leads to destruction. Rebellion against God always leads to destruction. You know, God made human beings to glorify him. That is to reflect him in the world and to do that through knowing him, through a relationship with him. Now, Herod might be an extreme example for us, but his downfall is a warning to us. Herod was a man who worshipped himself and he would stop at nothing 
in order to preserve his status and standing. We've seen that throughout this chapter. And as a result, he resisted God. He rejected Jesus, and he hated the followers of Jesus. And then this day came when God said, okay, time up. Time up. And that comes to every one of us. And it's as simple as this, folks. If you die shaking your fist at God, then you will be judged by him. And you will pay the penalty of that rebellion in hell. But our message today is to say, Jesus has come. And he has given himself. He has borne the penalty of our rebellion on the cross. He's risen from the dead so that all who come to him can not only be forgiven, but can live this life that glorifies God. It is the only way by which you can live the life you were designed to live, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And while, as we see here, that might not mean you live a long life, it might not mean you will have good health, it does mean you will have a secure life because you belong to Jesus now and he lives forever. That's why whatever the hardships of the church or even the hardships an individual Christian might face, God never forgets his people. How does it end in verse 24? We looked at this at the start. All of this goes on. Herod ends up eaten by worms, but... But, but the word of God increased and multiplied, just as God promised it would. Christian, our Heavenly Father can no more forget you than He can forget His own Son, because you belong to Him. Let me close with the words of Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, because God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Father, we thank you so much for this passage of Scripture. Thank you for the care that you have for your people. And Lord, there are some here today, I am sure, who particularly need to be reminded of the closeness of your care and love for them. Lord, remind them today that in Christ they could never be forgotten by you, that you have carved their names into the palms of your hands. And Father, we thank you for Lord, just for your commitment to the progress of the church of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we long to see that evident in this place, in our community, in our nation. Oh Lord, if there's any here who are still shaking their fist at you, still continuing on worshiping themselves, desiring their own will rather than yours, Lord, stop them in their tracks today. Turn them to Jesus, the one who pays the penalty for all our sins, who gives us life as it was meant to be. And we thank you that for all who trust in him, you keep us secure, never forgotten. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.
If anyone wants to speak about anything that's been mentioned in the service today or would value prayer, I'll be down in this corner. Please do come and and speak to me. Please do stay for tea and coffee. And let me just pray for us now as we close. Now may to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.